Recovery Elevator, episode 219. That sobriety delivers everything that alcohol promises. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time listening, welcome. It's great to have you. If not, welcome back. On today's podcast, we've got Sammy. She's been sober for over eight months. She's 28 years old from Prescott, Arizona, and she talks about how getting a DUI with her son in the car was the best thing that could have ever happened. So keep in mind, because I cannot wait to talk more about this concept in upcoming episodes, is that nothing is happening to you, but for you. As in every circumstance, event, experience, or occasion occurs for your benefit. It gets murky when we start to label life experiences as good or bad. But that's all I'm going to cover on that subject now because today we're going to talk about this whole surrender thingy and what all that jazz means. But before we get started, you guys know the drill. Let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. And guys, I am beyond excited about sober travel, in particular the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Trip that takes place January 20th to 31st, 2020. In this 12-day trip, we fly into Bangkok, Thailand, check out this incredible city for a couple days, and then head north to the jungles of Thailand where we will be visiting a place called Elephant World. We then make our way into Cambodia, where we check out some of the world's most impressive archaeological sites. Not only will we be forging lifelong relationships with others who no longer drink alcohol, check out some of the top destinations in Southeast Asia, ride bikes through rice paddy fields, hang out with elephants. I've got some incredible recovery workshops built in the itinerary as well. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary and details. Guys, if you didn't know, I'm writing a book. It's about the Revolutionary War. Just kidding. It's about alcohol and addiction. You guys probably already assumed that much. And after we hear from Sammy, I'm going to talk to you about the hardest part about writing this book, and it may surprise you because I know it surprised me. Also keep in mind, since writing a book as well, the largest project in my life up to date, I've had to cut my intros short, and I apologize for this. And I'm looking forward to when I can further dive into these intros because I absolutely love doing the research and compiling them. Okay, here we go. Get ready. We're going to talk about surrender. This is perhaps the most nebulous concept in recovery since according to 12-step programs and traditional thinking, it suggests 
We must fully give up control, admit that we are powerless over alcohol, and accept help from a higher power before we can successfully depart from alcohol. Yikes, that's a lot to unpack, and I'd like to simplify this concept and shed some light on what it really is. Sure, it's true that after interviewing over 250 people for the podcast, including my own story, that nearly all reach a moment of surrender. But what does that really mean? Guys, it doesn't have to be complicated, and it's not. Surrender is simply yielding to your next stage in life. As I previously mentioned, addictions are no more than signposts in life, and surrender is when we fully accept them and are ready to make what will most likely be the most important change in our life, quitting alcohol. As the mystic and 13th century Sufi poet Rumi says, the moment you accept what troubles you've been given, the door will open. So this moment of surrender, which one would logically assume comes with feelings of defeat, is actually empowering and incredibly liberating. Once we reach a moment when we realize there are no more ways to moderate in the playbook, and we can clearly see that controlled drinking constantly results in a dumpster fire, we usually find ourselves saying, fuck it, I quit, or I'm done, or I can't do this anymore. If you've ever muttered these words, and sometimes you have to say it hundreds of times, then congratulations, you've hit what I like to call the now what milestone, which is huge. This is when the extremely important memo of I'm done drinking makes it past the analytical part of the brain to the subconscious. And shortly after that enters the proverbial moment of clarity. So when we reach that moment of surrender or yielding to the next stage of our evolution on this personal plane, we say to ourselves, now what enters the moment of clarity? Now this moment of clarity would be intuition and not the thinking mind. Through this moment of clarity, we usually reach out to a friend or colleague who doesn't drink. We enter recovery podcast in the iTunes search bar, pull off some books on the Barnes Noble bookshelf, go to an AA meeting, a smart meeting, start burning the ships with people who are close to us in lives, perhaps a doctor, a therapist, a neighbor, a friend. After these moments of surrender is when perhaps the most important action ever in our journey can take place. If you're wondering if you've had a moment of surrender or not, most likely you've had several many surrender moments which led you to listen to this podcast. And don't worry, just like rock bottom moments, if we ignore or miss these moments of surrender, they will continually present themselves. The volume will be turned up on them, however, until we have no choice but to listen. Accepting this can be difficult, especially for competitive people or people with sports backgrounds, because it means we are exiting the game. In our culture, we are constantly told to get back up in life when you get knocked down, which is applicable to nearly every other problem we face in life. But when it comes to alcohol, this strategy simply doesn't work. And if you're questioning this or saying, come on, Paul, I don't really buy into that. All you have to do is look back. How has the Royal Rumble with alcohol gone so far? The moment we surrender, accept what is, we stop paddling upstream and start to let life unfold as it was intended to do so. We start living a real-life version of the 2008 Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man, because the resistance in life has been removed and the inner nope has changed into a yes. Best scene by far in that movie is when Jim Carrey is playing a cover of the Third Eye Blind song, The Jumper. My most intense moment of surrender came on Friday night, August 29, 2014, when I was DJing a wedding in Big Sky, Montana. While setting up during cocktail hour, 
I made frequent trips to the open bar, and with roughly five hours left in the wedding, I found myself drunk. I remember standing behind the DJ table with some sappy country love song playing, probably Neon Moon by Brooks and Dunn, I believe. I knew at the gut level I was done fighting and needed help. I knew there was little chance I was going to successfully finish that wedding. So I was the owner of a DJ business at the time, and another DJ of mine had just finished a fundraiser event only three miles away, and he arrived to finish the wedding for me. The universe was on line with this plan. It's kind of crazy how that worked out and lined up. I then called a dear friend named Christina who lives 45 minutes away from Big Sky in the town of Bozeman, Montana, and she came to pick me up. On the way down the canyon, I repeatedly called my mom, dad, and brother to tell them I was ready to seek treatment to go to rehab, that I was done fighting. Now, they had a current obligation. I forgot that the three of them were spreading the ashes of a dear family friend and were unable to pick the phone up. But when they called me back the next day, you know, my dad said, what's wrong, Paul? I said, yeah, you know what, dad? Uh, I'm okay today. I'm okay. Um, but I'll, I'll talk to you later if that changes. Um, I didn't let him know uh, of the intense feelings of emotion that I felt the night before because that day when I woke up, something was different. Little did I know I had surrendered the day before and the moment of clarity had arrived, that window to take the most profound action steps we can take on this journey had arrived. And that's when my journey begun. That wasn't my last drink. In fact, my last drink was on September 6th, 2014, when we went camping with some friends and I knew if I was gonna stay, I would be drinking for a long time following. So I recall drinking half of a beer, dumped the rest out and drove back to Bozeman. And listeners, surrender isn't simply a one and done thing. You don't surrender, moment of clarity and get sober. This is a good thing because we are continually evolving as human beings. And even as I approach five years of sobriety, I'm finding myself surrendering to where this journey, to where this pathway in sobriety is leading me. And the more I let go and just chill the fuck out, the easier and better it gets. So I know surrender can be a confusing topic, an almost intimidating concept to further explore in recovery. But guys, surrender is simply stepping back, recognizing the signs in our external and internal environment, and making the change that those have been pointing to all along. Okay, and now let's hear from Sammy. Sammy, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, Sammy. And listeners, I'm going to come out clean with this one. You think I'd be getting better at this podcast the further I go, but there's a round red button, and the hang-up button and the record button are identical. And right before the podcast, I was like, all right, here we go in three, two, just flat out hung up on Sammy. Sammy, Sammy <laughs> called back. It's great to have you back, and uh, yeah, let's get this going. I'm excited to hear from you, Sammy. Yeah. Okay, Sammy, let's get started. First off, how long have you been sober? I have been sober since July 21st of 2018, so almost eight months. Wow, congratulations. How's it feel? Thanks. It feels awesome. Super, super awesome. Yeah. Well, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, Sammy, what do you like to do for fun? All right. I'm 28. I'm almost 29. I'm from Prescott, Arizona which is a little town in northern Arizona. It's actually kind of a big recovery town, to be honest. I have a nine-year-old son. He's really awesome. I have two wiener dogs and a cat. And for fun, let's see, I like to, I'd say hiking, but it's not really hiking. It's more like wandering around in, in the woods or anywhere outside. 
I'm getting into yoga, getting all into like crystals and like witchy feminine stuff. So that's been a lot of fun. And yeah, that's about it, I'd say. And let's clarify this right now. On a map, it says Prescott, but it's actually called uh, Prescott. Am I right on that? <laughs> that's funny. That's a Prescott, like biscuit. Yeah. If you're from yeah. here, if you're from, the, if you're from Prescott, you say Prescott. It's only the outsiders that say Prescott. Yeah, I, I had a fling with a a, a gal from uh, Prescott, and she let me know every time when I said it wrong. Prescott, yeah, I'd love to see Prescott one day. Prescott, Prescott, Prescott. Yeah, that's like someone from Louisville, Kentucky. Was, uh, like last time, last podcast episode, I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> this is, I know I'm going to say this wrong. So <laughs> anyways, Sammy, give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, perhaps when you first started. Um, did you ever try to moderate, put any rules to place? And when did you first realize that alcohol had to go? Was there a rock bottom moment? Yeah, I'm excited. Bring us up to speed. Yeah, all right. First of all, I just come from a whole family of alcoholic addicts. I remember, I guess I probably had my first beer. I remember a Mickey's 40 when I was about 14. And I have a memory of actually lying in my bed at 13 years old and listening to my brothers. I have two older brothers. They're always partying. Listening to them with their friends and being like jealous or envious that I couldn't party, that I was too young to party. So I was just like waiting to get started, even from that young of an age. And so finally, I guess, uh, when I was about 13, they initiated me or maybe their friends initiated me. I don't really exactly remember. Kind of, I started dabbling a little bit with drinking. It was never really, I mean, I smoked a lot of pot when I was a teenager. Around that time, I wanted to be like a hippie chick. I had dreadlocks and smoked pot in the woods and drank beers with friends and stuff like that. But it was never too much of a really a thing in my life that was ongoing. I mean, just on the weekends and stuff. But when I was 17, my uh, mom actually passed away. She had a drug problem. And my whole teenage life was just Shoot. like totally messed up. Just total family dysfunction. Wow. Kind of crazy. Yeah. And so then when I was uh, 19, I got pregnant, though, with my son. And so obviously didn't drink then. Didn't really drink after he was born. It was kind of, I mean, I didn't have a mom to help me with him, really. It was kind of touch and go there when he was born. And his dad and I were together for a while. I turned 21 a year after I had my son. And my son's dad and I were together then still. But I remember they took me out to the bars for my 21st birthday. And I just got shit faced. And it was terrible. And I hated it. And I swore that I would not ever do it again. And I didn't do it again for quite a while, about a year. And then uh, right after my 22nd birthday, I wound up, him and I split up, my son's dad and I split up. And at that point, I had met a friend or a girl I knew from high school. Her and I weren't really friends in high school, but she had kind of reached out to me. She was newly single and had a daughter that was my son's about the same age. And she was like, we were both kind of depressed and kind of wallowing and, you know, single mom life, didn't really know what we were doing. And she was like, well, hey, we're still young and we can still have fun. How about we start like going out, and, like having a good time? I was fortunate enough to, I didn't work when he was little. I was fortunate enough to have my dad. My dad and brothers have always been in town and helping me out and supporting me a lot. So I was fortunate enough to have them to help me. She'd want to go out. I'd go out with her. My dad would help me out with my son. He'd watch my son. We'd go out for, you know, thirsty Thursday or Saturday night and just party, just get crazy, be ridiculous, drink a lot. And, but I never, I never really even saw it as an issue then, you know, it was just kind of something we did that was fun. We'd meet meet guys and go home with guys and it would just be crazy and crazy times. And I guess, I guess a couple years after that, maybe when my son started getting a little bigger, I kind of got out of that, didn't really want to do that anymore. 
she kind of continued on that path and I kind of watched her spiral down and kind of keep doing more, getting into more like hardcore stuff and not just drinking. And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. Look at what she's doing to her daughter. So I always kind of had this sense that, I mean, I wanted to be better for my son, but then, then booze was the thing in my life. I mean, I knew that I liked the way it made me feel, I guess, when I was going downtown and drinking with her. I mean, it just gave me so much, much confidence. It made me feel like I had friends and like I fit in. And I think that kind of goes back to even me being 13, laying in my bed, wishing that I could party like my brothers and wishing I had friends like my brothers. So yeah. it actually started doing that for me, kind of in a, in a fake way, not a real positive way, but... So it was still kind of relevant in my life. And so I would drink, I guess. I mean, we'd go out, I'd go out with friends and we'd have beers at dinner and stuff like that. And then I kind of started drinking at home a little bit. It, I mean, it got more and more. Eventually I was, you know, drinking, taking a six pack home. Sure. So, it's, so it sounds like you, you probably crossed a line in the sand of I'm not going to drink alone. And you eventually started taking six packs of beer home. And so you got, you got sober at age 28. And when, when was this? Was it a couple of years ago? Yeah. So, or actually, no, this was last, this was last year when I got sober at 28. So I always hit it behind this thing. I always drank and I hit it behind this thing where I was like a craft beer aficionado. I like to drink these like $13 six packs. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. I just really like fancy beer. And that was just bullshit. But the older my son got, the more I kind of, that's when I realized that it was a problem. I mean, my son got older and he started I mean, he's just so, he's so intelligent. He's so smart. And he knew what was going on kind of, or he knew, he probably knew more than he should have. I never really, I never really sheltered him in the way I should have, I guess. And so when he started asking me how many beers I'd had, that was like when I kind of realized, oh, this is kind of maybe an issue, but kind of blew it off. I'd lie to him, tell him I only had two beers when I in fact had four or five, things like that. Yeah. There's some great, you might be an alcoholic if lines in there wrapped up the last minute. Some really good ones. That's what I got. Yeah. Those are the ones I kind of came up with. And you mentioned, so it was at age 28 when he started saying this stuff or was it a couple of years ago when he started asking? No, it was probably, it was probably a couple of years. It was probably okay. a couple of years. He was about, cause he's, I mean, he's a, he was eight when I got sober. So probably when he was about seven, six, probably about seven, seven and a half is when he'd start getting on me about drinking. How many beers did you have? What are you, what are you guys doing? Stuff like that when I was with friends or whatever. And cause I always took him all over with me. I mean, I was a single mom at that point. So I kind of, I always had this thing where I didn't want to like push him off on anyone else. I didn't want to, like, I thought that that was what would be messed up was if I was like, you know, drink, like not taking care of him. Like I saw, I saw girls that I knew who like didn't even have their kids anymore because they wanted to party. And I was, sure. I, mean, I was like, Oh, well, I still have him. So it's fine, I guess. Or something, some kind of fucked up logic. And Sammy, let me ask you a question about when your son asked you that. Is this is this like looking back, the writing was on the wall? Or when he asked that question, Mom, how many beers have you had? Did you stop in that moment and say, wait a second, this is uh, this might not be right? It's kind of looking back. I mean, it made me angry. When he would ask me that, I would like get irritated. It would like irritate me. And it was the wrong way to react to him, obviously. Like in retrospect, it makes me feel... <laughs> I don't want to feel guilty. I know that guilt's a useless emotion. I mean, in retrospect, it makes me feel awful that I would. But I mean, that was kind of the alcohol because by the time he would ask me that, I would be like, you know, a couple sheets to the wind. And that's the type of thing that I would just get mad at him, be irritated. Like, what's his business? Like, I'm his mom. I, he's not in charge. I'm in charge. Kind of stuff like that. Sure. And Sammy, I think at the subconscious level, your son was challenging what you knew worked in life. Yeah. You had every yeah. right to get angry right there. Hang on. Yeah, extremely defensive. Because somebody close to you in life challenged your drinking and the protective personality ego is like, wait a second, this doesn't feel good. Of course you're going to be angry with that. Yeah. 
And so, so walk us through the next couple of years of your life up until your sobriety date of July 21st, 2018. So things just kind of got a little worse from there. I mean, I was eventually, I was drinking every day. I was going home from work. Oh, I forgot to tell you what I did. I work for an eye doctor. I have a really good office job that I've had for five years. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I work for an optometrist. I'm a technician for him. Okay. So eventually, and that always made me feel good. Like I had my shit together a lot too, because I could still manage to get to work and never really affected. I mean, I'd go to work hungover, but it never really affected my performance there. I always pulled it together. But anyway, so eventually I was getting beers every day after work and just drinking every day and being ridiculous and also driving a lot, drinking and driving too much a lot and drinking and driving with my son with me. And it was just total alcoholism at its finest and just blowing it off like it wasn't a big deal. And then eventually, and you know, my dad, he had been sober for quite a while. My dad had stopped drinking before I was born. He kind of had a relapse there a little while in my teen years, but then he quit drinking again. And he would always tell me, he'd always get up in my shit and tell me, you're going to wake up in orange someday and you're going to be calling me crying. And I think that was bullshit and think I just think I had it together. Just know I was okay. Just knew that I was, that that shit wasn't going to happen to me or whatever. So eventually I just got bad. So it was April 14th of 2018. I had gone up to visit a friend, a friend who I drink a lot with, a girlfriend of mine that I'd known from high school, a different girl than the one I was talking about. But anyways, I had gone up to see her and we had been hanging out by the pool. She lives about an hour away from me. We've been hanging out at her pool. We probably shared a six pack together. And then, you know, I grabbed a roadie, went for the way home and I was driving home with my son. And I mean, when I left her house, I felt okay, I guess. But I, at that point, I didn't even really know what feeling okay was. I was not a good judge. Obviously, my inhibitions were all gone. I wasn't a good judge of what was okay. Sure. We all get it. Yeah. So driving home, at one point, I like swerved real bad because I was driving on the highway. And I swerved real bad. And I thought, I had this moment, I was like, oh, my God. And I pulled over and I said to my, I turned around and said to my son, I had him with me. I said, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, what are you, be careful. What are you doing? And I was like, it's fine. We're almost home. And then, you know, it happened about a mile from, mile from my house. I saw those lights flash behind me, those red and blues. And even at that moment, I like thought that I was fine. I didn't even really, I didn't even get scared. I was like, oh yeah, this is whatever. I'm going to handle this. And of course, you know, cops came up. They're not impressed when you're drinking and driving with your eight-year-old son in the car. They obviously knew that I was loaded. Did a bunch of sobriety tests on me. Handcuffed me and took me to jail. Had my dad come pick up my kid. And that was the worst night of my life thus far, I'd say. Maybe in close close comparison to when my mom died. But I spent that night in jail, just like my dad had told me that I was going to wind up. And I just missed my son so bad. And I just, just recalled all the time, just everything. Just recalled all this shit and how this had come to place and how it had all built up to be this. And this was it. I mean, this was, that was my, that was my rock bottom, I guess. That's what happened. Yeah, that that's it. And, and Sammy, I want to, I want to read a line that you emailed me, which is when I read it, I was like, wow, I got to get Sammy on this podcast. You said, in regards to your, your DUI you got with your eight-year-old son in the car, it was the best gift the universe has ever given to me. Since then, I've experienced a fucking eye-opening change in myself, a knack for all this self-confidence and creativity that was drowning under pint after pint. Now, I've been on this kick. It's not even really a kick lately. It's just they're like downloads of information. I'm saying, oh my gosh, my addiction was the best thing that ever happened to me. I needed to go through that to make it here. For a long time, I, li- I, I labeled the entirety of my addiction as bad, as unfortunate, as why me. But it's not the case anymore. And it's not like a, a shift in perspective. It's not, it's not trying to spin things in the positive light, guys. It's, it's what it is. And I'm so happy that you see that. And, and so comment a little bit more on that for me. 
so yeah, and I mean, even immediately after that, I was I wrote in I had I wrote in my journal when I got home the next day. I got picked up and went, got home the next day, and I wrote something about God. I am just so grateful for this opportunity because I knew at that point. I mean, I had been hiding it, but that brought it to perspective. I mean, I knew that I was getting out of control, and so I was just so grateful. I wrote it down for the second chance, for a chance, and I was so grateful that I didn't hurt him in the process, that I didn't kill anyone, that I didn't fuck his life up before it was too late, that I didn't hurt him and drinking and driving and all that stuff. And I was just so grateful for the second chance. And it was scary and I was depressed and I was terrified, but I knew somewhere inside of me that this was it, that it was going to be good. And I mean, even though, you know, and then I was down the dumps, it took my license away from me. You know, I had to go to court, had to go to jail for eight days. They put me on probation, which I'll still be on for a long time. But just I knew that it was going to be the opportunity that was going to change everything. And I was so grateful for that because coming from and I had watched it previously happen to my brothers as well. I had my brothers in prison and they had previously gotten out and got sober. And I was it was almost like I was the last one left. So I had experience with it and watched it happen to other people before my dad and my brother. So I knew that it was uh, ultimately going to be a good thing. I was excited for the opportunity. And since then, I've really embraced it. Just been really excited about it and really turned it around. And I'm really happy to be in my son's life the way I am now and not the way I was before. Yeah, and listeners, the, the words like opportunity, eye-opening, propel forward with change in myself, these, these, aren't, these aren't mind tricks, not shifts in perspectives. That's, that's what these are. Um, we often miss them for what they really are. And, and you mentioned it was about a week or two before July 21st. Was that, it wasn't your last drink, it sounds like. What, bring us up to the gap to July 21st. So after the DUI, I mean, I knew I had this opportunity, but I kind of still didn't get it. I uh, even, I had to go, I got a restricted driver's license. I had to go to jail for eight days on the weekends. They let me do it on the weekends so I could work. Even one of the days before I went to jail, I stopped and had a beer. I still didn't really get it. So then this thing happened. This is kind of my uh, moment of clarity, I guess. I had to take UAs there for a little bit. I had to take uh, UAs for the DUI. And so it was July 21st. I took my first UA for a DUI and I was like, wanted I don't know I wanted to celebrate or something I guess so I had I had a beer I was thinking oh I took a UA I can have a beer or something like that I mean previously I had I had known that this was going to be a big change it had already sparked the change in me but I still didn't really get it so I had this beer so after I had the beer I had asked a friend to drive my car guy that I know I had asked him to go to the store and get me a pack of cigarettes so he was on his way to the store or he took my car and went to the store and in the process he got in a car accident in my car Wow. And that was the moment when I was like, I saw that was loud and clear, the message to me from the universe that I was that I didn't fucking get it. So, I mean, I still I was like, well, this is OK because I'm not driving. But the thing was, if I wouldn't have had the beer or whatever, my, he would have never gone to the store. He would have never crashed my car. And all that made me look terrible to my probation officer and put more suspicion in her eyes about what I was doing. And at that point, that was my true moment of clarity. And I wrote in my journal that night, I wrote. I love you, Sammy. And since I love you, I have got to keep you away from this shit. This is ridiculous. Like you don't, this is the universe telling you to get the fuck away from all of this and to keep it away because I love you and it's not doing you. It's not benefiting you in any way, shape or form. And I mean, even like trying to change it up where I was like, oh, well, I'm not drinking or I'm not driving, so it's okay. So I had the beer or whatever. And then he gets in this car accident. And that was like a real, my oh shit moment where I was like, God, yeah, this is obviously... I'm not getting them. The point's not getting across to me. And so that's when the point really got across to me. So that was my last drink. Sammy, I want to talk for a moment on cues. 
And what you just talked about, what the universe is trying to tell you, it's no surprise that you're starting to get into crystals <laughs> and yoga and <laughs> explore this path of spirituality. And so looking back, my summer of 2014, yeah, the universe presented many cues, many signposts, many nudges saying, Paul, it's time to move forward without alcohol. If you don't get it, that's okay. Not a big deal because I'm going to give you another opportunity to see it. Yeah, and, and, and that's how this works. And we're always getting these cues. We're always getting these indications, these nudges from the universe, from, from whatever, higher power, whatnot. They're just coming. It's just how it goes. You just got to pay attention. That's it. Most of us miss them every time. My mom was always a believer. My mom always said, if you, I mean, it's a lesson. And if you don't learn the lesson, it's going to come back to you in a different way, harder to learn the next time, kind of. And so, I, yeah, it was definitely a cue from the universe. That's for sure. Yeah, and, and they keep showing up. So that's the good news if, is if you miss one of them, they, they will show up again. The bad news is that they're most likely going to be more profound to the point where you can no longer ignore them. So walk us through what happened after July 21st, 2018, after, after your last drink. So then I just broke down crying and I wrote that in my journal that I had to keep myself away from that shit and that I had to love myself. And I kind of realized that I had been lacking so much. I mean, I had just been using partying and booze forever to build up mostly for confidence, mostly for some kind to feel okay about myself. Cause I never really, I realized I never really felt okay about myself. I mean, since I was little and I wanted to have friends like my brothers, I never really felt good in my own skin. So after that, I just really, and now I was, now not only did I, I mean, I, my restricted license was, my car was gone, I didn't have a vehicle. So then I really had to get humble and rely because I also never really wanted to rely on my dad or my brothers to do much for me. Really had to be humble and rely on them to get me to work and to get my kid to school and pick me up. I'm always, I'm always moving. I'm always wanting to run around and go do stuff. Had to get comfortable with being at home and focusing on myself and learning things. That's kind of when I found different social media and stuff about recovery. And that's kind of when I got woke to the fact that booze is just so prevalent. I started learning a lot about uh, drinking in women and how that's on the rise. Started seeing all this stuff about just the way that they advertise booze, like it's an accessory to everything. And it was just really eye-opening to me. And that kind of really propelled my wanting to be sober. And just day after day, the longer it went on, the better I felt about myself and the more stuff I learned about alcoholism and the more social media I found. And I just started to feel better. And I found this confidence inside of myself and I started to draw and I started to write more and I took up yoga stuff that I was scared of doing prior that, like I said, it was, that was always inside of me that was drowning under pint after pint of booze. Like I said, it bubbled up. It's like the, I always said it bubbled up just like the LaCroix that I was drinking bubbled up inside of me. <laughs> and I started to uh, really just get into stuff that I had wanted to be passionate about passionate about but was scared about and was using you know booze as self-confidence I found this real self-confidence and yeah so everything just kind of took a turn from there and it's just been really good since then and it just gets better and better every day and Sammy let me comment on the time frame after your car was uh, no longer in operation you learned a huge value bomb we talk about on this podcast and again, looking back, that's the best thing that happened for you. Oftentimes we perceive these things as bad. This is you not having a car. You said you had to reach out. You were humbled. You had to ask for help. For some reason, Sammy, we who struggle with uh, alcohol and addiction, including myself, we suck at asking for help. And the fact you didn't have a car basically put you in a spot. They're like, look, I need help. And you were able to develop those 
reaching out, asking for help muscles at an early time in your sobriety. And that's something that I'm still working with. You're three, four in sobriety. I'm still deepening with asking for help because the universe and everybody on the planet, they want to help. So it's actually deepening with what's already there. Um, there's so much abundance. We just choose not to ask for it in the resource. So I love it. I love it. Now in an early sobriety in the first couple months, did you, did you experience any cravings, any intense challenges? Talk about a specific moment, if you recall it. Um, and, and how did you get through these events? Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I'd have cravings. I just want to walk in my, I mean, I live right next to the gas station. I'd think about walking down there and getting a beer and then I'd remember the universe and just, um, staying on my path. I kind of would just, just ignore them. And I knew that, I mean, I had learned the cravings are, you know, uh, fleeting, that they go away. And lots of stuff, actually, I found it really cool. I, uh, different times when I would, there, I would be doing things. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's sunny outside. I want to have a beer. So much stuff that I discovered that I thought would not be enjoyable without alcohol was actually 10 million times more enjoyable without alcohol. So at one point, I took my son to see a concert. Or my, well, my brother drove me down to Phoenix to take my son to see a concert. Phoenix is the big city closest to us. And we got to the show. We went to see. I took him to see Panic at the Disco because he wanted nice. to be an emo pop star <laughs> or yeah. something like that. Good so, taste in music. <laughs> yeah, I know, huh? He got me all into it too. Now he's a now he's like jealous or something that I'm into it, and he showed it to me. He thinks he's cool. And I said this was around when I was 15, so just be quiet. So at one point, I took him to see that, and I was like worried, kind of thinking about. I mean, we got we sat down. The girls next to me had huge kind of beer, and then I was thinking, God, I wish that I was drinking. Like, and I mean, even all of this is is fleeting. Like I said, we did the concert. It was a blast. The music was awesome, and I enjoyed every fucking second of it and I just really took in everything took in the way that he was feeling the music took in because it was his first concert watched him react to it watched the band watched all these cool pyrotechnics and all this shit and remembered every little bit of it and it was so fucking awesome and I was so so happy and then you know we went to stay in a hotel and the next morning, I remember I woke up the next morning uh, within this dark hotel room with the air conditioning on. And I had recalled so many times that I had gone down to see friends down there or that I had that I had woken up in hotel rooms just feeling like dog shit, like microwave dog shit, just totally hung over and feeling like, why the fuck or what the fuck happened? And that morning I woke up with my son in that hotel room just feeling awesome. And that was just like so wonderful. And that's when I kind of, I thought, well, this is great. And so I had been scared prior to how things were going to be without booze. And I had had the craving at the beginning and wanted to drink and all that stuff. But then it just turned into this like experience that was 10 million times better than it ever would have been with booze, obviously. And that's kind of when I, and I kind of had this thought that, um, and I think I had read it somewhere that sobriety delivers everything that alcohol promises, uh-huh. you know, like, I mean, fun, confidence, friends, good times i mean it was just it sobriety delivered that and especially in that moment in that night with my kid at the concert it was just like amazing and it was so much better when i sober it was so wonderful and so that was a really big moment yeah sammy it sounds like there were a whole lot of firsts on that weekend <laughs> through that concert that's incredible and how has your life changed without alcohol well <laughs> just for the better i mean like I said, I, I discovered this confidence that I had always had inside of me that I was using booze to get booze and guys and stuff to get. And it's always been there. And I just, I, 
I like myself a lot more now. I think that I didn't really like myself for a long time. And I think I was really using these outside things to try to find ways to like myself or something when all of everything I needed was inside of me the whole time. And so that's a big one right there. Yes. And then just my relationship with my son. I mean, it just makes me so, I'm just so happy that I don't drink anymore. And I'm just my, I mean, I'm a better mom times 10 million and he sees that and he's obviously happy that I'm not drinking anymore. And I'm happy that I'm not drinking anymore. And I have all this energy. I mean, I used to get up on the weekends and he'd want to go swimming or do something. And I didn't I'd be like, oh, go on. I mean, just hung over, terrible anxiety, feeling awful and wondering why I did that shit. And so now, now I get up on Saturday morning and I'm stoked to go do stuff with him. I'm stoked to take him swimming and hiking. And I'm just so happy to be present with him all the time just totally present and I don't I used to get drunk and just I mean like I said I'd get I'd get defensive and mad at him for questioning me or whatever and now I don't have to do that I don't get defensive and I don't I don't act like a bitch to him and you know unless it's normal mom bitch stuff like telling him to pick his shit up but it's just that's my favorite part about it is my relationship with him has just like blossomed so much and I'm just so happy that I got it I feel like I got them got the message a little bit early or something like that <laughs> Sam, you dropped a huge value bomb that cannot be thought. It can only be felt. And I, I, it took me a lot longer for me to feel this, is what you said. You'll reach a moment where you'll say, oh, my gosh, I have everything that I need. It's already inside. Now, if we stick with this long enough, we'll eventually reach that moment. And it's a light bulb moment going, oh, my God, this is so simple. Everything that I've already needed was inside. So if you keep going long enough on this journey, eventually you reach a moment and say, oh my gosh, the answer was inside all along. It's a beautiful moment. And Sammy, I'm so happy you got there um, shortly after your sobriety day because it took me a lot longer. And Sammy, I'd like to ask you what a typical day in your sobriety looks like from start to finish. How are you doing it? Well, I mean, I wake up in the morning feeling 10 times better than I ever felt previously. I just like to have this normal mom routine now. It's so great. Like I said, I had spent so much time... Um, you know, hung over in the mornings and trying to get my kid to school and trying to get myself to work and just feeling awful and feeling a lot of anxiety. And my anxiety has dissipated so much that it's just so, I mean, I have these mellow mornings now, get my kid off to school on time, get to work, feel great, kick ass at work, do an awesome job, pick him up when I get off, come home. I go to yoga class a lot in the evenings now, and that makes me feel awesome. I draw a lot. I read a lot, books and magazines do a lot of art projects and stuff. It just, and now I'm almost to this point where I don't even really think about it. And I keep myself, I mean, obviously keep myself out of situations and away from things that would, uh, you know, trigger me really even having any cravings. And I surround myself with uh, people that are good for me. I know I've met a lot of girls around town here that are also sober. And I'm so fortunate that my family has all, like I said, I have two older brothers and my dad, and they're sober. And they've all struggled with addiction, too, so they really get it. And so I uh, love spending time with them, love going to the events. I mean, we go over at Christmas time. We uh, built these gingerbread houses. I went over to my brother's house, my brother and his fiance, and they have a um, five-year-old. He's, his fiance has a five-year-old son. And we built these gingerbread houses and it was just, just so, I mean, coming from this place where we came from, where everything was just so fucked up and dysfunctional, it's just so nice. I mean, normal shit. Cause we've never been, I mean, quote, sure. normal people. <laughs> so yeah. it's just, I love spending time with them. I'm so, I'm so grateful that they're sober too, that my whole family has gone through this and come out on the other side. And I think that I love to 
I always think about my mom and think about how uh, she would how she would look down on us now because she struggled with addiction too. Obviously, she it killed her in the long run, and like to think about how she would feel that her whole family was sober and thriving, and that makes me really happy. And uh, like to play with my crystals and do my meditation type stuff and make silly collages and do things that make me happy. It's all just been really nice. Sammy, it sounds like you and your family have broken the cycle. It's incredible to hear that. And I hear similar threads throughout the interviews with podcast. It's, it's so cool to see you guys on a family generational level, breaking the cycle. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Sam, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking? I would say it was Christmas of 2017. On Christmas of 2017, I got so shit-faced wasted. I drank a bottle of Jameson, and the next uh, Christmas went by, and I think that I probably poisoned myself, and I didn't remember if my son had any fun or if I had any fun, and that was kind of a big oh shit moment for me when I realized that this was probably getting out of control, and it was shortly thereafter that I got my DUI. Sam, you've got eight months of sobriety. How are you going to get month nine, ten, year one? What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Well, I'm really excited. I call them my redos. Really excited about redoing things that I have previously totally screwed up on, like my son's birthday, my birthday's coming up here, just continuing my yoga practice, continuing finding myself, excited to just make things better every day. And, and like I said, my redos, redoing, redoing stuff that my last birthday, I got so I got drunk and acted a fool and was terribly hungover and made terrible decisions. This birthday that I'm having coming up in a couple of weeks, I'm actually going on a trip to Alaska, which I love. I love Alaska wow. a whole lot. So yeah, so I'm excited to just. And my son's birthday was in February last year. His birthday, we had a birthday party where I got drunk in front of his friends, and that was terrible. This year, we had an awesome, epic birthday party where no one was drinking, and so my redos are my ultimate. Uh, my ultimate plan. I love, I get so excited. Look forward to every day now. Yeah. I love that. You got a whole lot of firsts ahead of you. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? Well, I love the podcast. I love recovery elevator. There's an Instagram page called tell better stories that I yeah. really do. Just really, really like learning about how they just put booze in our lives. Like it's a normal thing and it's so dangerous at first women and for moms i mean this whole mom juice i mean you know the wine thing it's it's just crazy so i really like learning and having my eyes opened about that really love the yoga that i'm doing uh the girls at the yoga practice are just really great and just reading different books and stuff like that in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received <laughs> oh my gosh that one i wasn't ready for I'm going to go, I guess I'll go one day at a time. My dad uh, likes to tell me, he's talking about uh, if you were going to go back, if you were going to do it again, get drunk again. My dad always says, play the tape. Think about, you know how it's going to go. Play the tape, put it on, see where it's going to lead you if you go back there. So play the tape is one of my favorites. And Sammy, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you uh, wake up in the morning and have to ask your eight-year-old son, what the hell happened last night? Yeah, that works. <laughs> Sammy, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul, for having me. I really, I really had fun. One would think the hardest part about writing a book is getting started with that first word, that first paragraph, page, chapter, right? Well, about halfway through the book, 
And I think right now I'm about 80% done with the rough draft. And the rough draft is by far the hardest part when it comes to writing a book. And I'm like 60, 65,000 words in, which is almost like a 200 to 250 page book, depending on the size. But I, what I am finding, which was a surprise to me, is that the closer I get to completion of this book, the more nervous I get, the more writer's block I'm experiencing. So why is this? Now, recently I went to the desert in, in southeastern Utah below Moab, did a loop through Monument Valley up through Page, Arizona, and, and did some writing on this book. I also did some meditating in the desert and, and some interesting bits of information came to me. I'm afraid to write this book for reasons that were blind to me previously. Sure, I'm afraid the book is going to suck. That's a fear that everybody has when they start to write a book. But there's an even bigger fear. This is kind of strange, guys. But work with me here. Listen to me on this one. Is there's a fear it might be good. And through further internal exploration, through meditation on this concept, I recognize that I've been holding back my entire life. I've been flying purposefully under the radar. And I was able to watch these unconscious patterns unfold in life, even during the writing process of this book. So talk about surrender. I need to yield to the next stage of my life. And let's face it, the book is just going to be a book. That's it. It might not be fantastic. It might not suck. Who knows who even really cares? It's just a book. I think there's like 70,000 books published a year. This, in reality, in the end, is just another book. But I begin to explore these unconscious sentiments a little further. Every time I break a new record on Monday, which as of late has been more and more with the podcast, I'm like, yay, that's great. But on the unconscious level, I'm like, oh shit, I'm scared. Same thing. Every time I get an extra Instagram follower consciously, yes, that's great. Unconsciously, oh shit, I'm starting to step into a larger role in the recovery community. I'm no longer flying under the radar. I'm getting way more emails than I can respond to. And guys, this is uncomfortable because my entire life, I've developed these systems, these techniques, these behaviors to fly under the radar. So it's kind of crazy. It's also kind of exciting that I can see this, lean into it, build on it, and surrender and yield to the next stage of my personal development. So thanks for being part of this next stage of my personal growth. All right, Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. This is an inside job, always has been, always will be. I love you guys. <laughs>